Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to, to Forest Park. Uh, before we get into the Word, uh, I would like for us to pray. Um, but one of the things I would like, um, I'm going to have you guys pray, um, and then I'll close this in prayer. One of the things I really want us to pray um, about is the situation going on in Ukraine. Um, pray for the people of Ukraine. Um, on Tuesday, if you participated in the global prayer meeting, um, I, I, I did, I hope you did, it was uh, very refreshing. And when you break out in these breakout groups, obviously there's people around the world coming together praying. And so one of the people in our breakout group, her name was Sophia, and she was currently in Ukraine in the city of Kiev. And, um, and it's very interesting as I prayed for her, asking her what's the situation going on, and she said, to be quite honest, no one really knows what's going on because of all the misinformation. There's a lot of fear, a lot of confusion, and you just don't know what is true. And so I'm thinking about her and her family in that city. Um, but right now, can you just take a moment right now and, ju and just pray for the people of Ukraine? Pray that um, the world leaders will step up and that the Lord would just do an incredible thing in the midst of all of this chaos. As you continue to pray, pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Pray for the churches, that the Lord would use them in a mighty way as they serve the people. Pray for the world leaders that they would stand up against tyranny and be united. Pray for the people that are fleeing, that are refugees in other countries. And just pray that in the midst of all of this suffering and devastation that the Lord would just do a mighty work as his name will be glorified in all of this. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are God and we are not, that you are sovereign and in control that you are gracious and merciful, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger. And yet, Lord, you rightfully punish sin. You have already defeated sin through the cross, Lord Jesus, and one day you are coming back to destroy sin once and for all. And until now, we are waiting for your return and our fight against sin and evil, knowing we have victory because of what you have accomplished. And so, Lord, you've heard the prayers of your people. Can you answer them? And can you show up in a mighty way? Lord, I, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can, make, can you make yourself known to us? Can you stir our heart and our affections for you? Lord, and as we talk about real faith and false faith and what the mark of a true faith and true disciple is, Lord, can you help us to honestly look in the mirror as we read your word? And can you convict us? But Lord, I pray that that conviction would not be so crushing but rather it would stir us to look to you and trust in you. Lord, that you would confront our false assurances and the false things we put our hope in, that you would dismember it, but that you would help us to take our eyes off of those things and move our eyes on you. That we would, may see the glorious richness of Jesus Christ in his word, and even at the table. So, Lord, speak to us. You know, each and every one of us, you know what we're thinking, how we're feeling. You know what we've gone through. You know our fears, our struggles, our insecurities. Can you help us to hear? Can you help us to understand? Can you help us to look to you and cling to you? And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John. We're going to be in John chapter 8, verse 31, as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. Now, what John is trying to do is he is trying to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and the way he does it is by showing us how first Jesus revealed his glory, and second of all, how Jesus is going to receive glory from the Father. And John's ultimate purpose of writing this book 
the, 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 let, the, the gospel of John, is to invite his readers in to believe in Jesus, the Son of God and the Messiah. And as we believe, we will have life in his name. Now, as Jesus spoke to the crowds, we learned that the religious leaders looked on and scoffed at Jesus, but we also will read that there are, few, there are some who put their faith in him. And what Jesus is going to do is as he's speaking to the crowd, he's going to speak of life and freedom that is found in him and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the book of John, there is a theme of believing, okay? So, so one of the tools that I find it helpful is that when we study a book of the Bible, I think it's important for us to zoom in and see what the author is saying and see what he's trying to communicate. But then in order to help us to see what he's trying to say, it's also best for us to kind of zoom out and look at the whole narrative. And so since we know John's theme and his whole purpose of writing his book is to invite people to believe in Jesus, we can assume that a major theme of the book of John is faith. And we see this phrase that many will believe in him. And so what he is going to do in our passage today is we're going to find out that there are many who believe in him, but then the question is, is it a genuine faith? And what Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to show them what true faith looks like. Because we've seen so far in the book of John, we've seen so far some who have believed in him, but then the second Jesus' teaching will be harsh, they would kind of walk away from him. Some have believed in him, and the only reason they believed in him is because they saw all the miracles that he has performed. And so we see how Jesus is not entrusting himself to them because their faith is not genuine. They're truly not trusting him. And then some are just simply abandoning Jesus after believing in him because we find out in John 6 verse 60 that his teaching is simply harsh. It's difficult not to understand, but rather it is a difficult teaching. It's a harsh teaching because it confronts us and all of our idols. So a major theme of the book of John is faith. And what Jesus is now going to do in this passage, he is going to talk about what genuine faith looks like. And so here's the question that I want us to to ask, and the question that I think Jesus is going to address is what's the difference between false faith and true faith? What separates from a reliable, genuine disciple to an unreliable disciple? Because we've already seen many who believe in him Yet they only believe because they've seen him perform miracles. We've seen many will believe in him, but the second that Jesus' teachings will become difficult and harsh, what do they do? They all walk away. And so now Jesus is going to address it. Let's see the mark of a genuine disciple in true faith. Look at uh, um, John chapter 8, verse 31. It says this, Then Jesus said to the Jews, who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we've already noted that in our passage, John has already talked about uh, what true belief looks like. He's already talked about the difference between true belief and unbelief. And we see many people believe in him and then they walk away or Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because their faith was not trustworthy. And now what Jesus is doing as he is addressing the Jews, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciple." So the question that Jesus is trying to address here and the question that we should be asking is these Jews in verse 30. Notice in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So these Jews in verse 30, was their faith real or was it false? The question is, okay, well, how do we know? What's the difference between a false faith in a true faith. What separates between an unreliable disciple from a genuine 
disciple. And what does Jesus say in verse 31? If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. Now, the Greek word for continue is meno. It means to continue. It means to abide. It means to remain. And really, what Jesus is talking about this, and we're going to see this theme even in chapter 15, and this theme in chapter 15 is kind of using the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what is Jesus saying here? In short, what he is saying, if you truly have believed me, if you truly are my disciple, you will persevere and continue and remain in my word. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing we can learn is this. Abiding in his work, in his word, is the mark of true faith in genuine disciples. Abiding in his word is the mark of true faith in genuine disciples. Now, here's the question we need to ask ourselves. What does it mean to abide? What does it mean to remain or continue in his word? I think a person who remains, who continues, who abides in his word as a person who seeks to understand better, a person who sees the word more precious than anything else, a person who sees the word more controlling, walk in obedience even at times where it doesn't make sense, even at times when that person is being opposed by everyone else. It is the idea of continuing in, resting in, trusting in, clinging into the word regardless of their circumstances because the word is more precious than anything else the world has to offer. Now, this idea of what Jesus is saying, if you continue in my word, you're really my disciple, is not an isolated idea, just what Jesus talks about. We even see this idea with throughout Scripture. We see in Hebrews 3, verse 14, For we have become participants in Christ, if we hold firmly until the end the reality that which he had started. 2 John 9 says this, Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teachings but goes beyond it does not have God. And so when Jesus says a a person who remains in my teachings and my message and my word, he is the one who has true faith. He is a genuine disciple. Now, now here's the hard part here, and and hopefully I can be gracious in it because I'm also preaching to myself. What we've done in our culture, especially in our context, is there are many lies that we as Christians have believed. Now, I'm not going to give you the list of lies and go on a rant because I don't think it's helpful, but there is one specific lie that I think the Scripture is addressing that we have believed, and the lie of a Christian not being in the Word, or as I would like to call it, a wordless Christian. Like somehow we have convinced ourselves that one can be a Christian without being in the Word. And what we say is because we are saved by God's grace in Christ through faith, not by work. So I can still believe in Christ. I don't have to be in His Word because all of these things are works. And I would affirm with the reformers and with you that yes, our salvation is by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, and through faith alone. However, what is your faith in? 
What is your faith in if you're not in the Word? How can you trust Jesus as your Lord and your Savior if you do not know who He is and what He has done for you? So a Christian that's not in the Word that says, I'm trusting Christ, my answer is, are you? Because how do you know Him that you can trust Him? And this is why the reformers added to this, where they said not only are we saved by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, but they add the part revealed through the word of God alone for the glory of God. In other words, what they're saying is, yes, the Lord has accomplished our salvation because he has sent Jesus to die for us and we trust him. And this wonderful truth has been revealed to us through his word. And so a wordless Christian, which really is an oxymoron, Paul would describe in Ephesians as somebody being tossed by the waves and being blown around by every winds of doctrine. Jesus would describe a wordless Christian as like in the parable of the seed and the sower, the seed that falls among the rocks, that when it grows up, what does it do? It withers away or among the thorns, that when it lands among the thorns, what happens? It gets choked out. Why? Because a wordless Christian has no root when it falls during difficult times. Because when difficult times happen and our circumstances influence us, then do we really trust that the Lord is faithful? Do we really trust that the work of Jesus is sufficient for us? And if we're not in the word, our circumstances dictate what we believe is to be true. And Jesus says you get choked out because life gets hard. And the reality of it is, life is hard. Where if you th- are thrown among the, the seeds, land among the thorns, and if you're not in the word, what happens? You get distracted. You get distracted by the worries of this world. You get distracted by the riches and the pleasures of this world. Why? Because you have not discovered the riches and glories of Jesus Christ. And one of the things I don't know about you that I've noticed in my own life is I am a person that are quickly and easily get distracted. And if I'm not rooted in the word, it is so easy for me to take my eyes off of Jesus and pursue these things even with good intentions. And then I find myself being choked out because it consumes me and it overwhelms me. Like, like, think about life in general. Like, how, how overwhelming is life? Like, you're trying to just simply make it. You're trying to raise children and not kill themselves to become somehow dependent on the Lord and also independent where they move outside of your basement. And then you've got to think about health and retirement. And there's all these good things to be distracted by. And if you are not in the Word, what happens? These things consume you. They choke you out. They distract you. And so the question, like, I really want to ask with all sincerity, and I hope that you remember this question, and it can kind of get seared in your mind, is are you in the Word, or are you a wordless Christian being tossed to and fro by every winds of doctrine? Are you in the Word, or are you a wordless Christian that is getting choked out? that is withering away because of life's circumstances and the worries of this world. And what Jesus is saying is, followers, genuine disciples, those who have true faith are those who cling to me and cling to my word. Why? Because he's the source of life. Our nourishment flows from him. Our hope flows from him. Our lives flow from him as we cling to his word. Like for the people in the day that he was talking to, for his actual disciples that were falling, they were literally hanging on every single word that came out of his mouth. And for us, we ought to be hanging on every word that is revealed to us through scripture. And so this genuine faith that perseveres, this faith that holds tight to Jesus' teachings. 
doesn't just stand alone, but look at what, look, look at the text. It comes with glorious promises. Like, look at the glorious promises that it comes with in verse 32. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, by the freedom that the truth brings, it presupposes that life before such truth is a life of slavery. A slavery to what? We're going to see in verse 34, but in a moment, here's the glorious truth. That not only is abiding in his word the mark of, of, of true faith and genuine disciples, but also an abiding in his word establishes truth and freedom. So if you're taking notes, abiding in his word establishes truth and freedom. So what does it mean when Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free? In other words, we come to know the truth, not simply by just intellectual assessment, but also in a sense by a moral commitment. And this truth has been revealed by who? By Jesus. In other words, because of the truth's intimate connection with Jesus, because Jesus says, I am the truth. True disciples not only hear his word, but in a sense, they're also united with truth, which is Jesus. And when we are followers of Christ, what does the Bible say? We are united with Christ. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And that is this idea of knowing truth and being set free because we know this truth. And so the nature of that freedom depends also on the nature of slavery. Look at verse 33 here. Look at how they respond. And again, it's very interesting to note these very people that have believed in Jesus, Jesus turns around and says, look, I'm telling you the truth. If you continue in my word, you're really my disciple. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And these very people that have believed Jesus, look at how they respond to Jesus, to what Jesus says. Verse 33, they're saying, we are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? So in other words, what they're thinking is if Jesus is offering freedom, then the assumption that they are currently slaves. And what do they do? They deny it. How can we be slaves to anyone if we are descendants of Abraham? So what do they mean of being true descendants of Abraham? What they mean by that is because the Lord made a promise to Abraham to be his God and him and his descendants to be God's people, they're saying, how can you say we are enslaved? Do we not belong to God? Are we not God's people? Has he not given us the law? And they're not talking about political enslavement because the Jews have been politically enslaved since the time of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But really what they are even talking about is spiritual enslavement. How can God's people who have received the law be spiritually enslaved? It makes no sense. And that basically the Jews, they saw themselves as sons of the kingdom. Mark 2.17, they saw themselves of not needing a physician. And they are convinced because we are God's people, because we are sons of his kingdom, we are not enslaved. We are free people because we are descendants of Abraham. And I think in today's language, what they basically were saying is, Jesus, we grew up in a religious family. We're moral and upright people. We do not miss any worship services. Anytime the doors of the church is open, what do we do? We are there. We faithfully serve. How can you now turn around and say we are enslaved and we need to be set free? And now Jesus is going to demonstrate of what they need to be set free from. Look at verse 34. Jesus responded them, to them, 
Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. And so Jesus, with a strong assertiveness, really makes plain this kind of slavery he has in mind. Basically, what he is saying is everyone who has sinned is what? Is a slave to sin. Well, what does he mean by that? I think it's important for us to understand that not only does the practice of sin proves that one is a slave to sin, but the practice of sin actively enslaves. Let, let me say this again because this is really important to understand. Not only does the practice of sin prove that you are a slave to sin, but the practice of sin actively enslaves. So, so here's a question I think we need to unpack and we really need to talk about. How does sin enslave? I think one of the things we have to understand with sin is sin is not an outward action, but rather it is an inward condition. For many of us, we would like to think that sin is out there. But the way it enslaves is because it's not outward. It's an inward condition. At times, it appears harmless. At times, it appears alluring and, attra and attractive. It deceives. And the way it deceives, it tells you it's not a problem. It's out there. It's not in here. It deceives because what it does, it promises you fulfillment. Have at it. You deserve it. You need it. You can't live without it. It deceives because it tells you that at any time you are in control of it. I can stop whenever I want to. Sin does not control me. I am bigger. I am stronger. And really what sin is, sin is like cancer. You can't see it. And it starts to spread. And it starts to take over. And, it, and as it, it takes over and as it's spreading, it enslaves more. And what it does, it destroys everything. Not only does it destroy you, but it destroys everything you touch. And you know why it's enslaving as you practice it? You can't get rid of it. There's no starting over. There's no reset. The damage is done. And, what it, and how it continually enslaves you, because you can't start over, it crushes you with the guilt and the shame, reminding you constantly of who you are. And then you start to believe, there's no hope for me. This is just who I am. This is just what I do. And not only does it crush you with guilt and shame, but the more you enslave with it, what does it do? It draws you further and further away from God, even to a point where you're saying, God does not love me, cares for me, there's no way back. And this is what sin does. And what Jesus does, he, he clarifies to them what is enslaving them. But then what he does is he takes this notion of slavery and he progresses the status of slaves. Look at verse 35 and 36 because there's really significance in this verse. He says this, A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Now, these verses are significant because here's what's going on. The Jews thought of themselves as sons of Abraham, which means sons of God. But what Jesus is saying is, no, you're not. You're a slave. You are a slave to sin. And so as sons of Abraham, the, the Jews in a sense felt spiritually confident because their assurance was based on their physical descent. And when Jesus tells them, you are not sons, but rather you are a slave, really what he's doing, he's striking at the heart of their assurance. 
Because what he is saying, because a slave is not like a son. Like, like he uses this imagery of the role of a son and the role of a slave. A son always remains in the house and in the family. Why? Because he is a son. But a slave can be part of the family, but his position is not permanent. Why? Because you can either let him go or you can sell him and he moves on from that family. And what Jesus is saying in a sense, he says in verse 36, so if the son sets you free, he's talking about himself, you really will be free. And what he means by that, because of his inalienable rights as the unique son of God, and he was sent by the father, he exercises his full authority by liberating slaves and as he is liberating slaves he does not keep them as slaves but what does he do he makes them you know where i'm going with this he makes them what sons in other words the son does not just liberate you and say have at it but he sets you free and he brings you into the family adopted as a son, which means you have a permanent position in the family. That's why he says when the son sets you free, you are genuinely free because the son has a permanent place in the family of God. And so which is the third truth we learn if you're taking notes? Is that the son sets you free by bringing you into a permanent place in the family. And because he brings you into a permanent place of the family, this freedom is forever. And how does he set us free? By his work on the cross. Because of his work on the cross and we look to him in faith, we are adopted into the household of God as sons and daughters of God. We are found to have a permanent family. And how does God treat his sons and daughters? Better than you treat your sons and daughters, which means he will never kick you out. Look at how Jesus continues verse 37, he says, I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I've seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you have heard from your Father. So, so at one level, Jesus is acknowledged, yeah, you're a physical descent of Abraham, but that's not very important. Far more significant is this mob mentality that you can believe me when you like my teachings and it lines up with your religious bias, but the second it conflicts it, what do you want to do? You want to go ahead and kill me. And that's not how Abraham acted. Abraham believed God and it was credited to righteousness, which means that's not how his descendants acted. And in a way, later on in the passage, we're basically going to find out where Jesus says, Abraham is not your father. The devil is, but, but let's move on. Look at how they respond to Jesus in verse 39. He's, they said, our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. We were born of sexual, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one Father, God. In other words, what they're doing is they're constantly emphasizing, I don't care what you have to say, Jesus, we belong to Abraham. And what do they do? They insult Jesus and say, look, we didn't have any sexual immorality in our birth because basically the irregularities of how you were born does not match up. But here's the thing I want us to focus on. These Jews, what was their assurance based on? What were they constantly emphasizing their assurance was? They were sons of Abraham. Their lineage. They claimed as children of Abraham to be free people. Why? How? Because they're children of Abraham. 
So in a sense, they're telling Jesus, we're not enslaved. And what they're doing, they're missing the point because what they did is they put all their hope in their lineage. They put all their hope in who they are and where, they, they, where they're from. And indeed, they were slaves to sin and they did not even know it. They were held captive and the chains of sin was so tight on their wrist that they did not even feel these chains. And what Jesus is doing as he's engaging them, he's not engaging them to win the argument, but what he's doing, he's trying to dismember this false hope and the false assurance that they're putting themselves, that they're putting their hope in and saying that there is no truth in that. There is no hope in that. And so really at the core of the issue, they saw no need to abide in his word, in his message, or in his teachings. Because they saw no need of being set free because they thought they were free. And Jesus graciously confronts and he takes their false assurance and he dismembers it. And we'll talk more about it next week. But here's what I want to address before, before we wrap it up. I think for many of us, including myself, we can relate to these Jewish people that Jesus were addressing. There's many things that we put our assurance in based on who we are, based on where we're from, based on even what we've done. Some of us, some examples of false assurances is family. I grew up in a Christian home, and that, in a sense, becomes your identity. For some of you, it's church membership. I'm a member of my church. I'm actively serving. For some of you, I'm a pastor, and in a sense, that can be a false assurance, being a good person, reading the Bible, or even your salvation experience. All of these things are things we have a tendency to put our hope in and base our assurance on. But here's what I want to tell you, is that any assurance outside of Jesus Christ is a false assurance. Why? Because an assurance outside of Jesus Christ takes our eyes off of him, takes our focus off of him, where we no longer cling to him and depend on him, but in all these other things. And this is what these Jews have gone through. They couldn't abide in this word. They couldn't cling to him. Why? Because their false assurance was on their physical descent. And what Jesus did for them is what he does to us. Because of his grace and his mercy, he does not allow us to continue in our false assurance, but he dismembers our false assurance by giving us a clear command. And that command is what? To abide in his word. In other words, it is a daily running to, a clinging to, because we are reminded in his word of who he is and what he has done, because our freedom is not found in who we are and what we've done or where we're from, but our freedom is found in his word. Life is found in his word. And what we are going to discover in his word is that when we persevere, we persevere not because we are clinging to him, but rather we persevere because he is clinging to us and so Jesus says look a genuine disciple true faith is the one who abides in my word don't have these false assurances now for some of you you might be a little confusing it might be a little confused here I'm not saying we can't have assurance for our salvation I think we can have assurance for our salvation. I think we should, and the Bible reveals it. So what should our assurance be in? Um, John Stott wrote a book, Christian Basics, highly recommended. It's a very old book. But he says, as Christians, we can have assurance in the triune God. He says, first of all, as, as, as Christians, we can have assurance of our salvation, first of all, in the faithfulness of God the Father. Second of all, our assurance can be in the complete work of Jesus Christ. 
Third of all, the assurance of our salvation can be in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what should be the assurance of your salvation be based on? Not on who you are, not on where you're from, not on what you've done, not on what you're doing, but rather that God is faithful and that his son's work on the cross is complete and that the Holy Spirit is powerful and it has the ability to regenerate me, transform me, convict me, lead me, and empower me. Now, where do we discover all of these truths? In the Word. This is what Jesus means of abiding in His Word. So when we find ourselves struggling and we wonder when life feels like it's falling apart and we wonder, is God faithful? Where do we go to? We go to the Word. Because what does the Lord reveal about himself in the Word? That he is faithful. And actually he reveals in his Word he is faithful even when you are unfaithful. Because it's easy for us to believe that God is faithful when we're faithful and the second we drop the ball, we think, what is God's attitude towards us? I'm done with you. But yet the entire Old Testament shows us God's faithfulness and his people continually being unfaithful. What does God do? He doesn't drop them. Yes, he disciplines them. He refines them, but he never abandons them. And so when we abide in his word, we're reminded, man, God is faithful even when I'm unfaithful. I'm clinging to that truth. How do you know that there's nothing you can add to your salvation and that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is finished and complete and his blood is sufficient to cover all of your sins, present, past, and even future, even the most horrendous things you have done? Where do you see that truth? You see it in his word as it reveals to you the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you feel beaten up by sin, Because you thought you would do better, and you're not. And you thought you could overcome the sin, and you're not. And you're discouraged, and you just want to give up. And you're thinking the Holy Spirit is not powerful. Where do you go? You go to His Word where you see the power of the Holy Spirit to make you new, regenerate you, to transform you, and to empower you to say no to sin. The reason why you can say no to sin is not because you're disciplined or because you're awesome. The actual opposite is true. The reason why you can say no to sin, because if you are in Christ, His Spirit lives inside of you and gives you the power to say, you know what, sin? I don't owe you anything anymore. I am no longer enslaved to you, for Jesus took my guilt and shame upon Himself. And I have the Spirit living inside of me that have sealed me and is empowering me to walk in truth even though I cannot fully see nor understand the truth that is what your assurance should be based on not from what family you come from not from some prayer you've prayed not from some church you're joining off or what ministry you're doing because those things do not endure they are false and Jesus says remain in my word cling to me as you cling to these truths so here's the question I want to ask you Are you in his word, or are you a wordless Christian that have chosen to believe these lies as you cling to these false assurances? Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to cling to your word. Help us to, first of all, see our need for you and recognize the dangers of sin and how it enslaves us and that you have come to set us free by liberating us from the evil rule of sin and making us sons and daughters. And in times of doubt and in times of uncertainty and times where we do feel like we don't measure up, we're not good enough, help us to cling to your word as we cling to you, as we're reminded of your faithfulness. 
your work and your power. As we continue to pray, like, I honestly want you to just take some time right now and answer that question. Like, are you in his word? Like, what assurance of salvation do you have? What are you, what are you clinging to? What are you putting your hope in? And I think for many of you, maybe it's time to confess. I think maybe it's time to be honest. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, I'm not in the word. And quite frankly, I don't even a desire to be in his word. Well, why don't you ask the Lord to stir in your heart that desire? Ask the Lord to help you cling to his word in times of bad and in times of good. Ask the Lord to help you not believe these lies. We're getting choked out and you're withering away as you're chasing after all these things. And then even maybe for some of you that you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation and you feel like you're not measuring up, I ask the Lord to help you to look to him, cling to him as you cling to his faithfulness, as you cling to his work and his power. As we get ready to sit at the table, another element of our assurance is the table. Here's why we end with the table. Because it's easy for us to be crushed by our sins. It's easy for you to walk out of here and say, well, I'm not in the word, I'm just crushed. But what the table does it's a visual reminder of the assurance you have in Jesus Christ. This is not, two, two things that, it, that it's not, it's not forcing you to confess your sins, although it does require if you're in Christ to confess your sins. And it's also not just simply a, a wafer and a cup of juice that lets you know that you are okay. But rather, what does it do? Who does it point you to? appoints you to Jesus. It first of all reminds you of who he is and what he's done for you. And as we lift up these elements, as we're reminded of his body given to us, we're reminded of his blood that was shed for us. I also think it's more than just memorial, but it's also spiritual. It's spiritual because we are eating and drinking in the presence of Jesus Christ. Because when, his pe when he is gathering his people to eat and drink, where do you think Jesus is? He's here. And so we're reminded of the truth that you are not alone. That Christ is in you. That Christ is with you. It reminds you, you are not alone. Because there's brothers and sisters in Christ that is with you. That's why we don't take communion in our personal homes. That's why we come together as the body and we sit at the table. And we share in the benefits of Jesus Christ and the glories of Jesus Christ and the preciousness of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us. And it's also a reminder of a physical table that is coming a physical banquet that is coming where faith is no longer needed, where we will literally sit in the presence of our Lord and Savior, feasting as the people of God. And so as we distribute these elements, like I want you to start see this table as the wonderful assurance you have in Christ, as you are reminded to fix your eyes on him and who he is and what he's done for you and that you are not alone, but that the presence of Christ is with you and that the people of Christ is with you. We're a family as we fight sin together, as we celebrate the wonderful assurance that we have. And for those that are outside of Christ, we want to invite you to come in to repent, surrender your life, to trust him as your Lord and Savior. 
but we don't want you just to invite you to come in and meet Christ. We also want to invite you in to be part of his people. And we would love to walk with you. And so after the service, come and talk to us and ask, what does that look like so we can walk with you and minister to you? So let's distribute these elements as we meditate on the assurance we have in Christ through these elements. What wonderful assurance do we have in Jesus Christ? It's a visual reminder of who he is and what he's done for us. And these physical things is not what makes us okay. It's Jesus Christ. But what these physical things do is point to Christ as we're reminded of him, as we look to him, as we cling to him. How do I know that the Lord will accept me as I stand in his presence and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's not because of anything I've done, but because of Christ has done on my behalf, because he has given me his body. Eat it in remembrance of him. He has shed his blood for me, and by his blood he has atoned for all of my sins. It's because of his blood that I can enter into a covenant relationship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Drink it in remembrance of him. And then take time to thank the Lord for who he is and what he's done. Ask the Lord to help you to cling to him, to remain in him, to abide in him, regardless of life circumstances. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have, that our hope is in you. Thank you for the life that we have because our life is in you. Thank you for the truth that we have because all truth is in you. And thank you for the assurance that we have because our assurance is rooted in you. May we never forget. Help us to persevere through the end as we look to you, trust in you, cling to you, and rest in you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus?